Hello, Redemption Hill family and friends out there. I'm glad that you are joining us today to gather around the Word of God. We're not going to do much with recap. We're going to kind of just jump right into things today uh, with a question. Uh, have you ever met a person or have you experienced knowing a person who simply kind of knows everything already? They just kind of have life figured out on their own. They, they've got it. They, they don't need help. Um, generally really don't need advice. They don't need uh, guidance at all. And, and maybe the person, like they're not even a complete jerk. They're actually really a nice person, but still they believe that they already know kind of everything they need to know, or they already have uh, kind of the tools with them to get anything done in life that they want to already. If you know that type of person, you've seen them maybe in a hard spot and and you try and go, well, maybe I'll help them and you offer some sort of, of help and they just kind of smile and give you this kind of uh, thanks but no thanks look, hey, hey, I've got this because they have this uh, confidence in them that they can they can do it. They can get through it. They can They can do what they need to themselves. This is a person who we would call self-sufficient or at least they think that they are self-sufficient. And while in movies, this uh, resourceful kind of MacGyver type is, is pretty intriguing to watch in, in real life or on the grounds or arena of the everyday where we actually live, this type of person is, is kind of hard to be around. Uh, normally because uh, the way that they act is formed out of an internal struggle with, with pride, which makes it difficult to be in community or be around them. Isn't the calling card of pride uh, really just this voice? Is, I, I don't need anyone. I'm enough. I got this. I, 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 can, I can take care of it. I, I can do it. I can put my head down. I can get it done. Right? That's kind of what pride does. But Proverbs, uh, Old Testament book of the Bible, a, a book that we would do well to kind of look at more to recapture what it is to have a drive towards Christian ethics, tells us clearly that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Essentially what Proverbs is saying is pride will cause you to fall on your face. At one point or another, generally, when you walk out in pride, in this haughty, I've got this, I can do it, uh, before too long, at some point, you are going to land really hard on your face. Well, we've all met this type of person. You may even have someone's face in your mind like, oh, I totally know that person. What I want to open up with is, is Paul is going to tell us personally in this text to make sure that we are not that type of person ourselves in our walk of faith and, and kind of how we conduct life in the kingdom of God. Don't be the guy who's like, no, nah, I got this. I don't, I don't need you. Uh, let's make sure to to, to get on the same track, make sure we're kind of going the same place here. It isn't hard to label someone else as prideful. It's not hard to do that. Like, oh, they're so prideful. Uh, to, to identify the sin of, of self-reliance in another person, that's not difficult. But we can easily become maybe uh, muted or blinded to the reality of pride when it kind of roots itself in our own hearts. And Paul wants us to know that we cannot be a member of the body, which is the church, and walk in faith and the kingdom of God well by telling other believers and God for that matter is what we'll find in this text. Hey, I'm good. I don't need you. I've got this. Things are under my control. I've got it. I can take care of it. That will lead us to falling hard, to pain. And Proverbs says it, it can lead us towards destruction. Be careful. 
about the mindset of, hey, I, I've, I've got it under control. I don't, I don't need anything. Another way to look at things and uh, kind of where we're going today is, is to ask this question, uh, one of those big, big life questions. What are you aiming for with your life? Right? What's the goal? What's the destination? I'm not talking about 401k and I'm not talking about college or marriage or anything like that. Just the, the big, ethereal, overarching question, what are you aiming for in your life? There's a parable in the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, called the Parable of the Talents. It's an interesting one. It's confused people for, for really as long as it has been written after Jesus said it, it has confused people. But the way too quick details of this parable is there is a master who goes away on a journey. Right? He, he goes away and while he is gone, he entrusts his servants with talents. Uh, I'm going I'm to go and, and I'm going to give you these talents for when I go. Uh, but, but then later I'm going to come back and I'm going to return and I'm going to take an account over things to kind of see what you did with, with what I placed in your hands, with what I entrusted with you. What did you do in your life? I'm going to go. Let's see what you do when I come back to kind of see uh, how you did or what you did. In verse 23 of that 25th chapter, after two servants, uh, when the master came back and both of them used wisely and faithfully the talents and the things that they had, the master looks at them and he declares these powerful words. Now, we need to understand a parable gives a spiritual meaning to a story in this idea that the master is, is, is God going a, a, away and entrusting things with us. So the idea in this parable is God returns, looks at the servants, and that's kind of an allusion to, to us to see what we did and how faithful we were. And he declares to these servants who were faithful with what was placed in their hands, well done, my good and faithful servant. We got to kind of let that one sit. Like that, that's not just a passing statement. This is the master saying, well done, you did good. You were faithful. As Paul talks about in other points in his writing, this would be a life that finishes well. A life that runs the race well, that lives faithfully. So the parable carries this idea of not earning your salvation by any means at all, but of being faithful and intentional with your life and the things in your hands and with what you do so that God looks at you and doesn't say, hey, great, you made me love you. You earned my affection. Uh, but he doesn't say that, but he looks at you and he says, you did well. You heeded the call. You were faithful. You were in intentional. You had a good life. You, you did well. A question that we have to wrestle with is, are those words important to you or not? Do you want to hear that? Is finishing well, is living, is living faithfully by being intentional a big deal to you? Are you aiming for something more than just making it to heaven? Are you aiming for a life that has lived well, models Jesus, and considered faithful? Is that even important to you or not? That's a question that is really worth prodding. And it's not a question for shame. It's really just a question about, are we honestly looking intentionally at our lives? Now, I know that this is a hard concept to wrestle with while still accepting grace. Basically, I think the theology of grace has in some ways confused us and maybe caused us some, some issues, right? I believe that maybe in, in ways for us to accept 
Jesus's work for our salvation, to fully accept Jesus did it all, Jesus paid it all, Jesus earned it all, to reject legalism, to reject any form of I earned my righteousness or I did something to make God love me, uh, to, to be able to do that, to, to fully know that hard work doesn't get us into the kingdom of God, I think accepting that fully has at times then on the back end caused us to think that we don't need to have a drive or desire or strain to be faithful. Well, if, if, I, if I accept and depend on Jesus fully, well, I, I, don't, I don't have to work that hard. And, and it's caused some difficulty for us. We have to see that trying to live well by following Jesus well is not rejecting grace. We have to constantly remind ourselves we aren't performing for forgiveness. We actually live well because we are free to do so and to try because of the forgiveness that we have already been given. That means we are free to strive, to be diligent, to be intentional, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. It it was a good life, lived well in my kingdom. You're faithful, you listened to me and you cared about what I said and you did the best that you could by actually straining and trying. Here's the idea, though. If you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, if you want to live well, if you want to uh, live in power and experience the full beauty of the kingdom of God, of God's redeeming hand and redeeming work over your life, then you'll have to do it by humbling yourself enough to submit and follow and be influenced by someone else beside you who is around you and there to help you right now. To be faithful is to submit enough to follow and be influenced by someone else. This is what we're going to find in this text. And, and I hope this is, this is helpful to us for how we move forward. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 22, they say this. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Look carefully, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to make sure to tread in a way through this text that honors Christ, graced gospel, and intentionality. We are by no means switching to a theology of a salvation by works. The opening of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all about grace, how our identity in Christ is a gift given, not a prize that we earn. We're loved, adopted, sealed, forgiven, reconciled, and so much more only by the plan of God through the finished work of Jesus and delivered to us by the Holy Spirit. All of that is is a gift, not worked for, not earned, uh, not bought, but given and accepted. We are not, and we will never as a church back down from that conviction together, and Paul won't either. He wrote all of that stuff himself while uh, really being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet, even though Paul was a proponent of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, 
we still need to wrestle with the words found in verse 15 of chapter 5. Paul said those things. It's all Jesus, all a gift, so that you won't boast. And he also said, look carefully then how you walk. He said both things, which is a command. Pay attention, be intentional, be faithful. Watch what you're doing. This means that we need to hold in tension some very difficult things. We need to hold in proper tension uh, grace that is given by Jesus in our salvation. All of salvation is grace. We need to hold that intention on one side with a call to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. With the the call to strive, to put on our new identity, to work, to, to aim to, to toil, to put on our new identity regularly. The call to imitate God in the kingdom of God. See, Paul knew and preached that grace did not absolve careful living, effort, and work. Grace didn't erase a need to strive and work out our faith well. This is exactly what Paul wants us to know in the text. You can receive grace and still try and still be intentional and still live a life on purpose. Now, we all know in our lives what it's like to be busy, right? To have a lot going on, um, to have too much on our calendar, to have too many plates spinning. And Paul speaks into that with a clarity that may be surprising for us. He says, look carefully at your life. That's what your walk means. And in the careful looking, make sure to be wise about things. Look carefully at your, at your life. In the looking, make sure to be wise, making the best use of your time, which is wisdom because the days are evil. There are two basic themes at work that Paul is putting together in these opening verses of this section, and that is that the days are evil and that time is fleeting and needs to be paid attention to. To help us wrap our minds around what he's getting out here, let's just say this. Uh, if we had a garden, all right, if that's your thing, if you have a garden and you want to, to, to have it look beautiful and bear fruit and do well, if you have a garden and, and neglect it, though, you don't pay attention, you don't water, you just kind of planted some stuff, it started sprouting, you're like, I'll see you when I see you. If you have a garden and you neglect it in a matter of time, that neglect will lead to weeds that overtake the garden. You'll probably have animals and other critters that get in and mangle the garden, and you will end up with plants that fail and a lack of fruit. Neglect the garden, the fruit will fail. Now further, if, if we have a body, which right we do, and we begin to neglect it, and over time we continue to neglect it by not valuing sleep, by, by not moving around, by not caring about what we put into our body in a matter of time, the body is going to break down. Neglect, not paying attention, not being careful about the body will cause it to, to break down. Well, our internal life, our, our, our heart, our walk of faith, our, our faith is really no different than that. When we neglect our heart and our faith by not tending to it, by not paying attention to it, by not trying or being intentional, slowly but surely that lack of intentionality, it's going to start adding up. And our hearts and our faith will most likely become uh, weak, uh, filled with weeds. It, it, it will be difficult. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden you become disowned or unsaved, but it does mean that a neglect of your heart and your faith will have very negative effects to the fruit that you bear in your walk, your faithfulness, and even your joy in the kingdom of God. 
You see, our world marred by sin, our broken world has a natural tendency towards corruption. All things left unattended or not looked after or cared for will break down. All things. Our walks of faith, our faithfulness, our fruitfulness, our power. Therefore, I I think the message for us is, guys, tend your gardens, tend your body, and tend your heart and your soul. Don't neglect them. Don't ignore them. Be wise. And to be wise is not to ignore those things, but pay attention to them. Don't leave them unattended and walk away and hit autopilot and be like, hey, things will be okay. Now back to the idea of busyness or our historical bent towards busyness. We all know that the, the, the current situation and pandemic has kind of changed a little bit of our busyness in a moment. But generally, we fill our hours and our mind and our thoughts with so many things. We are bombarded. There's a constant demand to keep going, to do more, to be more, and to be preoccupied with more. And when we do this... When we keep having this tendency to do too much and see too much and want too much and we're moving so fast, what's going to happen is we are going to be required to take our eyes off of our heart and our soul to tend to the too busy of a schedule that we are maintaining. Right? In order to keep all of the things going that we have in life, something is going to have to give. And generally in busyness, what gives is any type of attention to the heart, which equals neglect to a heart. This is not walking wisely, right? This is not making the best use of our time, Paul says. This is forgetting that the days are evil and things tend to to break down and head towards corruption over time. And to do that is to be foolish and to be unwise. Pay attention, wake up, be careful. That's what Paul is saying. If you begin to wonder if Paul has lost it, Right? Is, he, is he all of a sudden changing his theology and inventing something new by talking about time and redeeming time and being careful and working hard? No. In the Old Testament book of Psalm, chapter 90, verse 12, we see something very similar. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The Old Testament book is connecting an intentionality, a a, a redemption of time, a looking at time, and, and, and carefully watching what you do with it is a marker of wisdom. Be alert, be attention, respect, and wisely use your days and your time and your hours. Basically, when we get too distracted in life to pay attention to our time, when we stop being intentional with it and we just kind of let time go by and we just kind of do whatever is in front of us, it is incredibly difficult to be wise and careful that way. That's probably too light of a way to say it. If we're not paying attention to our time, we just can't be wise. It's not incredibly difficult. I I would say that the Bible tells us it's impossible. You may ask, well, what do I do with that information? How do I become wise in redeeming my time and my days and my life? And Paul, even all this time ago, he cleverly sees that question coming. He's really good at this. He sees the question coming and he answers it for us. You redeem and use wisely time and careful living by, here it is, seeking to understand and follow the will of the Lord. How do you you repurpose and regroup around your gauge of time? You begin to intentionally seek out God's will. I want to know what you want. I want to know what you think. 
I want to know what you want of me. When you begin to enter into that regularly, you begin to think of your time differently because you want to use your time to understand and walk in God's will. This is wisdom. To seek God's will in and for our life regularly instead of floating through time, assuming, now I got it. I'm a, like, I'm a good person. I'm naturally going to do what he wants anyway. Paul, Paul's going, that's foolishness. Now, Ephesus was a port city. It was also at the heart of Greek culture. Uh, they were professional sinners, right? They, they, they had crazy parties. They, they, they definitely went for their sin. And importantly, on top of it being a Greek culture, or at the heart of Greek culture, Ephesus was at the heart of, uh, of their old-time wine country. Right? So we've seen in our modern day California's wine country for, for us in the U.S. or if you go overseas and you get to real wine country. But for them, Ephesus was wine country. So imagine an almost endless supply of amazing wine, the best fruit of the vine that you could have. It's all over the place. It's easy to get. It's everywhere. That was Ephesus. Which meant drinking wine in an overindulging fashion is par for the course. It's just what they did. It was ingrained in their culture. They even have a god of wine back then named Bacchus that they loved to worship, right? How would they worship a god of wine? Well, by throwing back the fruit of the vine. Like, I love my god of wine and just smash and drink. This is what they did. I'm trying to paint a picture of a culture that everything they did was included and maybe tainted with wine and the overindulgence of wine. Not the redemption and celebration of a glass around a meal. They did everything to throw back a ton of it. Getting drunk on wine was a preferred activity for their culture. Everyone knew it. Everyone saw it. It was embedded there. And pretty much everyone just kind of went with the flow to drink in that way. What Paul sees is believers were having a hard time stepping away from that. They were getting caught up in the same thing. It was everywhere, it was easy, it was good, and they, they were overindulging themselves. Not giving their time and their lives to the same habits of unbelievers was, was, was things that the church was, was doing. So Paul says to this reality, remember, among teaching us to seek the will of God in a place that they're drinking way too much and, and, and getting drunk all of the time, Paul says, you shouldn't be getting drunk with wine because that's debauchery. Instead, you should be filled with the Spirit as the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament language, it's, it, it's, it's really saying, hey, instead of being full of wine, be full of the Spirit of God. There's been so much confusion and argument over what these verses mean, but in order to try and make a run at understanding what Paul is, is intentionally trying to say to us here, we need to back up for a second and, and make sure that we see the entire picture instead of looking too closely. Paul is telling believers here, be careful about how you walk. Be careful. He's telling them, make sure that you're wise about how you use your time. He's telling them, be careful because the days are evil. And he's telling them, seek out the will of God for their lives. But he's doing it in a particular writing style here as he's contrasting opposing ideas in the verses. In verse 15, he, he contrasts unwise and wise. 
In verse 17, he contrasts foolish and understanding. And then in this verse 18, he contrasts drunk and being filled. We need to understand getting drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit are paired together intentionally for a specific reason in the text. Paul is saying in the original language something like this. If you have to get filled by something, you should make it the Spirit. If you have to be under the influence of something, it should be the Spirit. Stop using wine and go for the Spirit instead. You love to be led. You're being led by the wrong thing, though. Paul is in no way making a plea for people to begin to slur their words and stumble around and blame it on the third person of the Trinity. This is not what he's saying. He is referring here to the idea of influence, control, and power. Be under the influence, control, and power of the Holy Spirit. We've all seen someone who has drank too much alcohol. And in that place where they have overindulged, they surrender control over their bodies and actions to the drink, right? They're no longer in control. They're acting in a way that they wouldn't if they were sober, which means that they are surrendering and being influenced and altered by the drink that they're overconsuming, right? We've seen this. We've seen smart people drink too much and become incredibly dumb, Right? We have seen boring people all of a sudden get loud in the life of the party. We've seen wimpy people think they're Rambo and brave because they had too many drinks. And we've seen happy people just kind of fetal position crying all of a sudden, all because they're under an influence of a drink that is changing the way that they live. Something else is taking over the lead. It's, in, it's influencing them. It's guiding them. It's directing them. Paul is saying, guys, stop letting wine lead you and influence you. Instead, let the Holy Spirit do that. Remember, back to, do you want to live carefully? Do you want to understand the, the, the will of God? Do you want to be wise? Then let the helper who Jesus told us about come beside you, lead you, and influence you. A careful, diligent, wise life has to be one that the Spirit is leading. Sometimes we get really freaked out when we hear about the Holy Spirit's work. I understand that. But we have to remember, Jesus said before his ascension, I have to go away to send to you another paraclete, which means another helper. Literally, one to be with you and help you. One that it'll be better for you when I go away. Jesus was literally saying, it's better that the Spirit can help you because the Spirit can be with all of you and I can only be in one place at one time while I am I'm here. So I'm going to send this helper and the helper, the Spirit, it's going to counsel you or he's going to counsel you. He's going to guide us. He's going to lead us in our life. The Spirit will help you see Jesus more clearly when you allow him to lead. The, the, the Spirit will help remind you of the gospel. So Paul hasn't all of a sudden gone off the deep end. He's using a scenario that was common uh, to them to speak to them about the Holy Spirit leading them. Saying, guys, if you want to be wise and find the will of the Lord as you live, you have to understand practically, you are not going to find the will of the Lord at the bottom of a bottle, right? You need to stop looking there. It's not helping you. Besides, drunkenness is debauchery and that's a sin. And if you're wondering what the will of God for you is, a sin is definitely not the will of God for you. So if you want to find the will of the Lord, stop looking there. Instead, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the will of the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit 
to lead you, to help you, to guide you, to counsel you, to influence you? Why don't you surrender your pride and humbly ask the Spirit to lead? This is Paul's words. To direct your path. This is wise living. This is how to find the will of the Lord. This is how to live out the identity that you've been given in Christ well by letting the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, help you. You have a member of the Trinity sent down to counsel, walk with, guide, influence, and help you. You don't, you won't ever find the will of God through getting hammered or on your own. Just the way that things are are lined out here from Paul. So begin to earnestly seek and desire the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. As you hear this, you may think, okay, I understand what you're saying. Yep, I get it, but no, I'm not going to do that. Right? I, I've seen people and I've heard stories and I went to a place where they said they were led by the Spirit at one point and like they did some things that I don't ever want to do. So like I've seen it done that way. So yeah, I, I hear you, but I'm out. I, I, I would just lovingly say, in the words of Sam Storms, do not let someone who used the Spirit wrongly cause you to disown the Spirit and think that the Spirit isn't valuable to you. Don't do that. That I understand that there's some scary stories out there, but those probably aren't really what the Spirit is for or to lead you towards anyway. We do need to make sure to not skate around the weight of Paul's words here. Because if you're going, yeah, I still hear that, but like, I'm just going to opt out. Paul says to believers here, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is to say, this isn't like, here's an option. It's an imperative. Right? We don't like commands because we don't like to be bossed around, but Paul's commanding it. Believer, be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian, to follow Christ in our walk of life is to be led by and influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. Those things go hand in hand. They're not options. They're they're what it is to be Christian. It's a benefit to you. Jesus went away to send the Spirit to help walk with you. This wraps us all the way back to the beginning of today's sermon. To be a Christian who wants to live well, who wants to be faithful, to be one, is to be one or has to be one who asks for help from one who can actually help you, God the Spirit. The one who is personal and desires to walk next to you and actually help you out. In another practical sense, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that we get not just by mentally accepting Jesus and learning more on our own, right? We get these things. They're called fruit of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that brings them. The Holy Spirit is the one that fosters them. The Holy Spirit is the one that, who, who kind of helps our life be fertile soil for these things. You don't get these without the Spirit. What we may consider is if we have a noticeable lack of these traits, if they seem to be low or non-existent, it might be because we won't desire, ask for, or allow the Spirit to lead or influence us. We may be that guy at the beginning of the sermon who's going, I'm fine, I don't don't need you. A dry, empty, directionless, and powerless faith for a long time is quite possibly a sign that we have rejected the Spirit's leading in our life. It's actually a very clear sign of that. 
and given him the subtle or clear message, I don't need you. I've got this. Thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate it. Cool. I, I appreciate the offer, but I'm okay. Paul's lovingly, loving command for us here is don't do that. Do not reject the Spirit. Instead, press into asking the Spirit to come lead and influence you, humbly acknowledging that you need help to walk in wisdom. Humbly acknowledging that you need help to understand the will of God. And then rejoice and find comfort in knowing that the Spirit is actually here to help you. It just takes humility enough to go, okay, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And the Spirit can rush in to help you at that point and counsel and lead you. You may ask, okay, but practically where do I start if I want to have the Spirit fill me or influence me? Where do I begin if I realize that I haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead me at, at all? The, the best first step is simply to admit it in prayer by repenting. Grace can never cause us to stop repenting. Tell God what he already knows. I've rejected your spirit. For whatever reason, I just kind of thought I could handle it. I, I thought I could do it. And I, you know, I, I thought that my life didn't have maybe big enough things to need your spirit to help me with. But, but, but I, I do need you. I'm sorry. Will you give me more grace? And here's the beautiful part. There's an abundance of that for you. Admit and repent. God, I've rejected your spirit. Then I'll stretch some of you possibly. The Holy Spirit is related to all over the Bible in a personal way, meaning that the Spirit of God is not a force, an it, a thing. It's related to as a person, as a person. That means that there's emotions and, and wills and feelings. So a great step may be to begin to pray in, in kind of in a reverent way, relate to the Spirit as a person. Holy Spirit, I'm sorry that I rejected you. And I'm sorry that I made you feel like I don't need you or that you're worthless. Will you draw near to me? I, I need you. I've done it my way and I've tried to hit wisdom and faithfulness and all these things without you and I can't and that's what you're for and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me and walk close with me again? Will you come near and lead me and help me? Then Paul gives us a list of other great things that help foster the Holy Spirit's ability to lead and influence as we carefully walk out our faith in Jesus. Paul says, to those who desire to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, address one another in psalms and hymns. You ready for this? That means read, speak, and recite scripture with other believers regularly. Because the Spirit leads us often through the word of God in our lives. Essentially, scripture is like fuel to the engine of the Spirit's leading. You're not going to get it started up without Scripture. You alone in a vacuum without the Word is not the perfect soil for the Spirit to lead you. You won't go anywhere without the Scripture, right? So Paul's going, hey, if, you, if, you want to, if you're wanting to start being careful and analyze like how the Spirit can lead you, start by having a life that, that speaks, recites, and reads Scripture with other people. Paul also says, don't just read Scripture, Sing to one another. Sing with one another. Sing spiritual songs. Make a melody to God with your heart. And I wonder if that makes some of you uncomfortable. Open those lips and sing and let a joyful noise come out. Whether it's pretty or not, sing. Sing. Singing is a way that really involves our heart. And that, again, is like throwing gas onto the fire. 
It is a regular uh, mode in Scripture for the Spirit to work and lead through us through, through declared song over the glory and goodness of God. The Spirit, the Spirit is able to use that. I'd go as far as to say, I don't think that there's a scriptural basis for you saying that you're Spirit-led if you refuse to sing. Because singing isn't a talent or a hobby or, or like some people's thing. Singing is actually a commandment. From God the Father, my people will sing. All over the scriptures is the command, not the ask, not the sit there, open your mouth and sing. You may ask, well, why? Like, I don't like it. Why do I have to do it? And the reason is singing connects you instead of fragments you. It connects your physical body with your spiritual being together when you sing. See, we're not just bodies, and we're not just minds, and we're not just a soul. We're all of these things. So singing incorporates all of those elements into your faith, and you begin to practice your faith with your entire being. It's a problem when you fragment and only participate in your faith, uh, in your soul, but not ever in your body. Right, that, That's part of the reason that a lot of us are, are kind of just tired and things feel heavy right now is, is our bodies are missing singing and gathering and worshiping with other believers in the way that we're meant to and we kind of feel it. So singing is a call to not be a disconnected, fragmented worshiper. And it's a way that Paul says the Holy Spirit uses to be able to lead you more. That, that, we could give a whole sermon series through that. Read, recite, be around the word and sing. Sing, make melody, make a glad noise to the Lord in your heart to incorporate all of your being into the worship of a God who is worthy of your praise. Paul also says, if you want to help prepare the soil of your heart for the Holy Spirit's work, then you should practice giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to each other out of reverence. A heart that is foolish and unwise and doesn't understand the will of God is often also a heart that is just extremely unthankful, extremely ungrateful for what it has and what it's been given and the mercy shown to it. Paul says, a surefire way to restrict the ability for the Spirit to lead you is to begin to just cultivate a heart that just isn't thankful or grateful for anything. So because of that, uncomfortably at times practice thanking God and thanking others and reciting what you're thankful for to stir your heart for what is good and you are grateful for. And that is a great way for the spirit to help use you and also lay down your pride enough to submit in reverence to the other believers around you. We all have to learn we're not the most important person. So to submit to other people, to love other people, to, to at times lay down what you desire for other people is a great practice to keep your heart in a spot where the Holy Spirit can work in you and on you. These are Paul's words to us, church. I pray that the Spirit can use them. And I feel like I've gone through the gauntlet where the, the Spirit has been preparing me this week to use them. But here they are. Be careful at how you're walking and living. Be intentional about how you spend your time and what you do. Your calendar, your hours, your downtime, they matter because they influence your heart. Be persistent in seeking to understand the will of God the Father. So all other religions and other faiths, they have this God out there and you try and uh, appease it and kind of win its favor. But our God speaks to us his will through his word. We get to see it and then we get to strive to understand it and know him more. 
persistently seek to understand the will. Here's the big one for today. Be humble enough to be led. Be humble enough to be led by the helper, God the Spirit, who is with you, sent by Jesus. Right? If we're walking in a posture to think, man, I just, I'm good. We're rejecting the Spirit's leading. We're already not understanding the will of God. We're, we're walking in kind of a foolish manner and we're being unwise. Submit. Humble yourself before the Lord and see if there's not beauty there. Paul goes, hey, and if you're wanting to do that, here's some rhythms that'll help. Scripture, song, thankfulness, and submission. If you want to create an environment for the Spirit to lead you, regularly engage in those things. I would encourage you to right now be receptive to the Spirit even pointing at one of those things. I don't know where you're at. If you've ever felt conviction or prodding, but be receptive for the Spirit to go like, hey man, can we work on that one right now? Because that could be the beginning of the Spirit's leading in your life. I would encourage you to spend some time after the sermon, before you go do whatever you're going to do after this, would you spend some time just praying, asking Spirit, will you lead me? Will you help me? The beauty, church, is that even if we hear something like this, we're like, ah, man, I just don't know that I've done very well there. When we feel conviction or correction, the beauty of this is the body and blood of Jesus has already been spilled and broken for it. Meaning he's already paid the cost. He, he's, he's already given you freedom. He's already given you rede- redemption. So when you feel the urge to, or you feel conviction and you need to repent, you don't have to, to, to shrink back in fear. You can confidently move forward and go, let's take care of that because you're still a son or daughter of God and the love of God hasn't changed for you. It's okay to hear a call that requires us to pray and repent. Jesus already paid it all the full price. So we're free here to hear the Holy Spirit's leading and walk appropriately with that. Jesus has indeed paid it all. And now Paul with this text is telling us to walk in the all that Jesus has for you though, to walk fully and beautifully in the kingdom of God. We're going to have to be influenced by the Spirit. Even if that scares you or makes you uncomfortable, hear this. The Spirit of God can lead you. Conversations that you just don't know what to say choices that you don't know what to make, urgings of how to love and and see God more. I just don't know how to do it. Friends, that's what the Spirit is for, to walk with you, counsel you, and help you. And, And Jesus sent him for you, and Paul is telling you and I, church, for far too long we have walked as if I don't need you, but the Spirit is here to lead us now. I pray that we would hear that, that we would be wise with that message, We would ask the Spirit to once again lead us fully, that we would submit, begin walking faithfully. Friends, my hope is that we would walk these lives that are fully in the kingdom of God, that all of us would hear one day, well done. Yeah, man, you you definitely hit some bumps in the road, but that's okay. You were faithful. The Spirit led you and you submitted. Man, it was hard, but you were brave. You did well. Jesus paid it all and then you walked well. Good job. Good job, my faithful servant. That's the hope for us. We'll pray today. God, I thank you for this text. I know it's hard. I pray that you help defend us, that we wouldn't have a, a mindset of duty out of this, but maybe even encouragement of the beauty of the Spirit. Would you help us to submit 
for our lives to be ones that consistently ask, Spirit, what would you have me do? That we would be okay with a regular pattern of saying, Spirit, I've lived as if I didn't need you. Will you help me? God, will you help us with that? Jesus, I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. It is your sacrifice that gives us the ability to be able to kind of walk through these things and wrestle on whether we have lived well or not. Give us more of your mercy and your grace. I pray that we would, would not just walk in shame, that we would feel encouraged to let your spirit lead and see the beauty of where it takes us. I pray that in your name, God. Amen. Church, I hope that you're doing well. We're going to put out some more updates pretty soon about kind of what's coming over the next months for a Redemption Hill. So be looking for those. I love you guys. I miss you. I hope to be able to see you before too long. Have a great day.